Hi everyone, welcome to this episode with Kevin Mitchell, a neurogeneticist based at Trinity College Dublin. If you enjoy this show, please hit subscribe, as doing so will allow me to continue speaking with amazing individuals. I hope you do enjoy it. Thanks for watching. So Kevin, I thought it'd be great to ask you at the start to just kind of explain a little bit about what your profession is. So what does it mean to be a neurogeneticist? Sure, yeah. Um, well, so I'm basically I'm a, a scientist interested in um, really the relation, I guess, between genes, brains, and minds. So um, I've studied over the years how the brain um, how the brain develops, how uh, genes in the you know what the genetic program is to to um, specify a brain, specify how it gets wired. Um, how variation can emerge from that and what sort of effects that can have on things like um, differences in people's psychology or um, risk of psychiatric disorders or things like that. So um, so it's really, I mean, it's, it's basic science and I work in a university in, in Trinity College Dublin where I'm a, a, a lecturer as well as a researcher. And um, I, I guess the research that I do is it started out very much basic research, just interested in biological questions of, of how um, genomes can direct the development of a brain, and then moved into more um, clinically relevant sort of areas, thinking about the, the, um, the application of that knowledge to um, conditions like autism or epilepsy or schizophrenia, and so on. So in my work, I do a lot of, um, I'm not a clinician myself, but I do a lot of uh, collaborations with um, psychiatrists and neurologists and clinical psychologists and so on. So it's like, I was going to ask if it was kind of best situated between neuroscience and genetics, but it's a real interdisciplinary subject then, I guess, lots of things going on. Yeah, I mean, it is it is absolutely interdisciplinary in the, and really it's, um, you know, when we think about disciplines like neuroscience or, or genetics, they're defined in a way by either what they're interested in. So neuroscience is defined by its interest in the brain and the nervous system and how it works and how it, um, you know, produces the mind and clinically um, what underlies, you know, conditions like Alzheimer's and autism and so on. But people bring very different approaches to that. So some people approach those questions, um, you know, doing, say, neuroimaging or pharmacology or physiology or genetics. Um, and for me, I approach the, it, you know, doing genetics and um and really developmental biology as well is, um, I guess, my home. So what I'm interested in is the genetics of how the brain develops and um, how that varies between different people and then how that variation manifests um, at the level of our psychology. Okay, really interesting. Um, so I was intrigued to, to see you went to Trinity College Dublin. So that was actually where my, my granddad did a degree in medicine and my dad went for a short period as well. So we visited there a few months ago, um, which was nice. Can you just talk a little bit about the the reason you chose to go there and why you chose to study genetics as your, as your undergrad? Yeah. Um, well, so I uh, grew up as a teenager here in Dublin and um, was interested from an early age in science and, and biology in particular. In fact, I, what I really wanted to be was the next um, David Attenborough or, or Jacques Cousteau. I mean, I grew up watching those um, programs on TV, just naturalism and, and you know, the amazing um, wonder of the natural world. 
And uh, so I was inclined to be a biologist, but coming from very much from that um, from that perspective, that's what really interested me was animals, animal behavior, um, and so on. Um, but I, when I first got exposed to genetics as a science, I guess I, I just sort of, it really hooked me. Um, it felt like something really fundamental, um, a kind of a thread that, you know, you can use that approach, that genetic experimental approach to try and understand all kinds of um, aspects of biology from, you know, the, the molecular basis of how cells work all the way up to the evolution of, of populations and species over millennia. So, um, yeah, so genetics sort of uh, fascinated me and um, I chose to do that, specialize in that in, uh, in my undergraduate degree. Do you ever expect to, to return there to work? Because I know you're there working now. Yeah, so I um, did my undergrad at Trinity and then I went to the States to Berkeley to do a PhD and stayed um, in California to do a postdoc at UC San Francisco and Stanford. And that was 10 years in, in California and it was a long, um, it was long time. Obviously, sort of on the, uh, on the cusp of, of either staying or going, you know, making a commitment to, to remain there or not. And at the time that I left, which was the early 90s, there wasn't a lot of funding in Ireland for science. It was really, really difficult to do um, high quality science in Ireland. The money just wasn't there. And thankfully, while I was um, that period in the States over the 90s and uh, just at the early 2000s, a new um, funding agency was set up in Ireland with a, really a lot of foresight, um, you know, looking forward to see what kind of economy Ireland could be, you know, was it going to really become a, a progressive, modern um, kind of economy with a scientific infrastructure? And so this um, agency, Science Foundation Ireland, was set up with um, very considerable funding, certainly compared to what had been there before. And it just happened. I mean, the timing was just really good for me that by the time I was finished my postdoc, there were some opportunities um, to come back here. And so... Um, yeah, it felt like it felt like a good time to do that. It felt like Ireland was making a commitment to um, scientific investment in you know, basic research and and also um, translational applied research at the same time. So um, yeah, and then just you know for family reasons, really, um, it it was uh, it was an easy decision to come back to Dublin at that time. Yeah, you mentioned your 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 PhD at um, University of California at Berkeley. I think I read online that you studied the neurodevelopment um, of mice or something like this. Can you just say a little bit about what your research was? Yeah, it was fruit flies, actually. So um, when I was an undergrad, uh, we had some we had some lectures on the basis of, of development. So how it is that a, a an egg, a fertilized egg, can develop into the the final um, form of the organism, whatever it is, and a lot of those. Um, lectures were based on what was known from fruit flies. So some fantastic work that had been done um, by Christiane Nusslein-Volhard and her colleagues, uh, where they really were working out the development of the early um, sort of patterning of the fruit fly embryo, which is a, a famous and a favorite model organism for geneticists. So we can do lots of genetic experiments with them. And um, those, so I was really fascinated by that. I mean, that's just a really, really... Um, important and central question. How is it that the genome somehow in a single cell specifies the emergent form of an organism in all that detail? 
And the work that um, Nusslein Vollard and colleagues have done, it started to, to um, work out those processes, but mainly for the sort of overall patterning of the of the fruit fly as it happened, which is, you know, put make a head over here, make legs here, make wings here, and so on. Um, when I went to Berkeley, I did it partly because there was someone working there, um, Corey Goodman, who became my PhD advisor, who was taking the same kind of approach, but to the wiring of the nervous nervous system, the development of the nervous system itself. So the nervous system is, uh, you know, it's a tissue. It has to be set aside and specified and patterned like any other part of the embryo. But it also has some additional challenges that have to be met in that you have to make all these different nerve cells in, in different places, but then they have to connect with each other in, in very specific ways. And what um, Corey and his colleagues were interested in is, you know, what are the instructions that allow um, that, 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 that genetic program to play out such that the nervous system, in this case of a fruit fly, is made uh, over and over again in this really stereotyped way so that, you know, a cell here will project over here and, a, and another cell here will project like that. Um, and so he, it was a really, really powerful system. Um, experimentally to get at that and actually started with the, the simplest sort of question you could ask about how the nervous system is wired. So rather than saying, how does everything get everywhere and make all the connections, um, it really started with a really, really basic question. So in the central nervous system, um, it's it's bilaterally symmetrical, like, like ours, right? So we have two halves to our brain, two halves to all of our nervous system down our spinal cord. And that's true in a fly as well. And some neurons in the fly connect to the other side of the brain and some of them only uh, send connections on their own side of the brain. So something in the genetic program specifies that, that simple binary choice. Do you cross the midline or not? And that was the first um, system that we started working on, trying to figure out really, you know, the basics of the logic of that and how it's genetically controlled. How easy is it to take, um, you know, what you learn, for example, from from organisms such as a fruit fly towards kind of understanding the, the human? Um, how do you kind of make that bridge that gap? And is it easy sometimes or is it always very difficult? Yeah, it depends, right? I mean, sometimes there's a very direct connection. Um, for example, one of the, you know, one of the genes that we worked on, my colleagues and I um, found in fruit flies that was controlling whether these neurons cross the midline or not. Um, turns out to have a very direct homologous gene in, in humans. Um, and when we look at that in, in humans or in mice, we can see that those, those genes, you know, there's several of them actually, they're doing very similar things as they do in the fruit fly. And actually, even when you, you know, if those genes are mutated in, in human beings, you end up with a clinical condition that affects some um, crossing of, of midline. And um, in particular, it affects coordination of the eye movements as it happens that there's a particular area where it manifests more um so that's a really that's a really pretty direct um you know correspondence between this what the gene does in the fruit fly where we can do all these experiments and work it out in detail and what we see in a human when it you know there's clinical um condition caused by mutation in that gene more generally, I guess we can figure out the principles, right? the sort of the broad logic of how the brain gets put together uh, in a model organism. Like I said, starting with the very simple sort of decisions that a neuron has to make. Should I go left or right? Should I cross the midline or not? Um, and the, the goal there is to start simple, 
build some concepts and scaffold up to the more, much, obviously, hugely, hugely more complicated situation of the mammalian brain with, you know, hundreds, billions of neurons as opposed to tens of neurons. So we can get a handle on things with a simple system. The goal then is that we learn some um, general principles that we can use, uh, build on to get understanding of more complex systems. How far do you think we are from kind of fully understanding, you know, how a fruit fly's brain works? Yeah. Um, so there's some absolutely fascinating work going on. And this is not something that I've ever, you know, was involved in myself because I moved from flies to working on um, mice and, and humans over the years. But people in the fruit fly neuroscience field now are just doing incredible work. So they have some so, so the fly brain, you know, it's got tens of thousands of, of neurons. Um, they're organized in very particular ways into different brain regions and structures. They're connected in, in particular ways. You know, there's some visual centers. There's some centers for smell and learning and memory and um, navigation and, and so on. And so you can, you can pick out different circuits that mediate different kinds of cognitive operations, even in a simple thing like a fruit fly. Um, so, you know, they when they're navigating around in the world, they have a set of challenges that they have to face and meet, like, you know, where am I? What's out in the world? Um, what are the opportunities out there? Are there things that I should approach? Are there things that may be threats that I should avoid? Uh, where are they in relation to me? Uh, what's my body doing right now? Um, you know, what what's, what's my internal state? Do I need food? Do I need uh, water? Should I look for a mate? Is there... You know, is there a potential mate out there? Um, so, so they have different, you know, current motivations based on their current state. They have different um, potential sort of a potential landscape of opportunities and threats out in the world that they need to assess. And they have different uh, memories that, that they have learned individually that, that affect um, their responses to things. So they may have learned, for example, that a particular odor is associated with a bad outcome and they should, and they should avoid that. Right? So they have to juggle all of those things and their, their brain is the system, the cognitive you know, control system for doing that, balancing different goals um, and deciding to do one thing. So selecting one action out of their potential repertoire. So um, what's amazing these days is that using a variety of different tools researchers can go in and they can activate or inactivate really, really specific sets of neurons in the fly brain while the fly is doing something. And actually, we can do this in, in the mouse brain now as well. Um, the, the nice thing about the fly brain is it's, you know, it's tens of thousands of neurons instead of tens of billions of neurons. So it's much more manageable. It's also much more stereotyped. You can go into the brain and find an individual neuron uh, that we know is always in the same place and connects in the same way in every brain, you know, from, from animal to animal with a little bit of, of, of variation. So um, the tools are incredible. You can go in, you can tweak the activity of a certain circuit while the animal is doing something. And then that lets you infer, you know, this is a circuit that mediates, um, you know, goal, represents goals maybe, or represents a, a particular goal or mediates, you know, sexual attraction or some other function that, that the fly has to um, has to perform. So, yeah, I mean, I think what's amazing is that the they're much more cognitively sophisticated than I think we ever gave them credit for. And again, the goal in 
working out the sort of um, circuitry that mediates those functions of cognition in the fruit fly is that we have a, a fairly simple system uh, in which to understand the basic principles. Over, you know, over evolution, those basic ideas are still there, right? We're st- we still face the same challenges that I just outlined as the fruit fly does. We have to look around. We have to assess our situations. Uh, we refer to our memory, uh, balance our goals, and so on. It's just much more elaborated and, and much more sophisticated circuitry that operates over many more parameters at a time and a much longer time scale, right? We, we look further into the future. Um, but yeah, fruit fly neuroscience, these, it's sort of a golden age, I think. And there's ab- some absolutely incredible work going on. So after your time in the States, you come back to Ireland. Yeah, what, what would you say have kind of been the key areas and focuses of research ever since you, you kind of came back? Um, yeah, so I came back to Ireland. I had moved from um, the working in the fruit fly nervous system development to working on mouse nervous system development. So basically the same kinds of questions, but just moved into the mammalian nervous system, which presents you know some challenges, but also um, has some opportunities and some more um, direct relevance to the human nervous system. Obviously, you can point to a, a bit of a mouse brain and say, well, here's the analogous bit of a human brain. It's a little bit harder to do that for, a, for an insect brain. Um, so the goal when I moved back to Dublin was to continue that mouse work. And we, and we did that, trying to figure out how different parts of the brain get connected, um, what are the molecules involved, how do they work. And you know, some of that went down to really, really detailed levels of even like the crystal structure of the protein. So the, the atomic level structure of the proteins, we have you know, a, a protein that sits on one cell um, that acts as a signal to another cell that has a receptor for that protein. So those two things have to bind to each other and we could go down to the, to the atomic level to really see, you know, how do those, um, how is that binding actually mediated? How does that lead to change inside this, inside the cell? So really, you know, biochemistry and, and cell biology um, down at that level. But I guess what I always wanted to do was zoom back out to say, okay, here's here's the nuts and bolts of how these particular signals work. And that's a model in general for how s- signals and receptors work uh, overall. But they, um, you know, it's not the case that any particular neuron's connectivity is defined by just one molecule or one cue. It's reading lots of cues at the same time that are all trying collectively to channel the development of the brain into the um, sort of typical outcome, right? So that, that's, the, that's the goal of the genome is to get the brain to self-organize along this trajectory that will produce a viable outcome. Um, so I've always been sort of more interested in that bigger picture. And, and, and also there's a, there's a logical step. So if you're working on the genetics of how the brain develops, it, it's a logical sort of step to say, well, okay, well, what about the genetics of things like neurodevelopmental disorders? It's just the flip side of the coin. If you have a, a mutation that affects those instructions, then maybe when it's mutated, it leads to altered wiring in a way that might um, lead to you know, psychiatric or neurological conditions. So, um, so I started working with some colleagues in Dublin who work on psychiatric genetics who were coming from the other angle. So looking at people with conditions like autism and schizophrenia and asking, you know, what are the genes that are uh, 
that are affected that may carry mutations or genetic variants that predispose to risk of these conditions, which are really highly heritable. And, and it turns out that those two approaches of, of the genetics of how the brain develops typically and psychiatric genetics really converged in the middle. Um, and it's very clear that those conditions are neurodevelopmental disorders. Right? They reflect alterations in the way that the brain develops. And I think that's a really key aspect in thinking about those conditions. Um, so, yeah, so I started do, doing more collaborations and more work in humans, uh, more work in animals, too, looking at the effects of those mutations on the behavior of the animal, uh, the physiology of neural circuits, and so on. So the consequences of neural um, of genetic mutations, not just for development, but how altered development manifests in the function of the brain. Um, and then we de I, I developed one other area which of interest, which has been really um, fascinating for me, which is about this um, human condition called synesthesia, which is not a, it's not really a pathological condition. Um, it's a perceptual condition where people, for example, um, sometimes when they hear a sound, they might see a color, they might see a flash of light in their, in their visual field. Um, for some people, it's, very much sort of out there. They really perceive it out in the world. Um, for others, they kind of have an internal um, knowledge that some things, some stimuli have these other properties. Um, so, you know, some people think of, of the letters of the alphabet as having different colors, for example, or, um, you know, there's various forms involving even people like tasting words and, and things like that. So it's a sort of a the idea is it's a kind of a, a crossing of, of the senses somehow where uh, some stimulus that's ordinarily in, or just in one keeps in its own lane uh, somehow sends a cross signal that activates a different part of the brain. At least that's the, um, that's the idea. And so, again, with um, a bunch of great collaborators in, in Trinity College, we've been investigating that for, for years. And it, again, it's a genetic condition. Um, my... My interest in it was really prompted by the fact that some of our mice that we work on that have mutations in these genes that tell neurons where to go actually have these kinds of crossed wires in the brain where the what should be the visual center of the brain is innervated by, um, by neurons that carry tactile information, say, from the whiskers. So it seemed like a, a parallel kind of scenario there. Um, and we've done you know various sorts of uh, experiments, neuroimaging and um, uh, electroencephalography experiments in humans with with synesthesia and various other kinds of uh, ways of looking at the the nature of the phenotype, right? The nature of the condition, which sometimes goes beyond um, just these sort of um, sensory um, cross cross associations. Um, yeah, so that's that's been really fun for me to broaden my perspective um, to collaborate with people, you know, from quite different disciplinary traditions. Um, and, and learn from them throughout my career so far. And I've been really lucky to do that. And in 2018, I believe, 2018, 2019, you released a book called Innate, How the Wiring of the Brain Shapes Who We Are. Um, I kind of feel like the, the talk you did at the Royal Institution and your, your TED talk was kind of associated kind of about that. Could you explain a little bit about that book and that area and, and what you were investigating there? Yeah, so the book um, Innate was... I guess I was inspired to write it um, by um, working at that intersection between genetics and, and neuroscience and thinking about 
how um, differences in the way the brain develops can lead to differences in, in psychological traits generally, sometimes to the point where, um, you know, you get psychiatric disorders actually um, emerging. So, you know, it had been known for a long time that a lot of um, psychological traits are partly heritable. Uh, I guess what I wanted to do was look at that relationship through the lens of development, which is essentially how you get from genotypes, the, you know, the, the DNA sequence that we inherit to phenotypes, the traits that we show. There isn't a there isn't a direct relation there to get from here to here. You have to go through the processes of development. So um, the sort of the potentialities in the, in the genome have to be realized into one particular outcome. And so what the book does is, is really um, look at that relationship between uh, genetic variation and variation in our psychology, but it also um, considers another source of variation, which isn't, um, isn't very often looked at, which is variation in development itself. So people often think, okay, you know, say we can find that maybe a trait is like 60% heritable, right? Now that's a technical term. What it means is that across the population, when we look at differences between people, about 60% of that spread that we see is due to genetic differences. So if everybody was a clone, they'd be much, much more similar to each other, right? Um, and when you look at something like height, for example, you know, it's 80 or 90% heritable. So most of the differences that we see between people are caused by genetic differences, not environmental ones within the population that, we, that we're looking at. You can do the same thing with psychological traits. You can kind of get a measure of, you know, now they're imperfect measures, right? But you can get a proxy of, say, uh, intelligence quotient or performance on cognitive tests or um, personality traits like extroversion or conscientiousness or something. You, you can put a number on them. It's really arbitrary, but they're fairly stable um, properties uh, and, you know, the, the, the give a kind of an idea that some people are more conscientious than others. Once you do that, you can do this sort of test and say, well, how heritable are those numbers that we have? And they turn out to be, you know, 40, 50% heritable or so on. So when people hear that, they often think, okay, maybe half of the variation that we see is due to genetics. The rest must be due to environment. So they think nature, nurture, must be genes and environment. And in fact, there's a third source that is really important, which is just development itself. So even if you have identical twins, starting with the exact same genome, and the you know, development proceeds, it doesn't proceed identically. Development is just inherently a noisy process. It's just highly variable. Um, and and you know, what the genome sort of tries to do is, like I said, channel that into a viable outcome, but it doesn't specify everything about the, the outcome because there's not actually there's not enough information mathematically speaking, in the genome code itself to specify everything about how our brains are, are organized. Instead, what it does, it, it encodes the rules by which the embryo self-organizes. But it does that with a lot of, you know, it's making proteins, they're diffusing around the place, they're binding, they're unbinding, they're all kind of jittering like, you know, small things do. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, of, of variation in the process that leads to variation in the outcome. Um, and we can see that, you know, if we look at identical twins, even just in their physical features, they're not exactly the same. They're very similar, but they're not exactly the same. If you look at the structures of their brains, they're 
very similar, much more similar than unrelated people, but they're not exactly the same. And that's even just at a, at a crude level, right? At the microscopic level, they're really not the same. Um, and they, and you know, twins are not, they don't score exactly the same for conscientiousness or um, extroversion or neuroticism or these other traits. They don't have exactly the same IQ and so on. So, um, so there's a lot of, you know, if we think about our innate psychological predispositions, what makes us different from each other, even right when we're born, some of that comes from differences in genes, but also some of it just comes from the, this idiosyncratic, never-to-be-repeated run of development that happened, um, which I think you know, has a lot of implications just for understanding the, the, the biology, the nature of the relationship between genotypes and phenotypes. It also, I think, um, places some firm limits on how um, tightly we'd ever be able to predict things like intelligence or personality from just genetic sequence alone. We'll only can do that sort of statistically, um, but never precisely because there just isn't a precise relationship between the, the genome and the, and the outcome. It always has some sort of stochastic element um, to that. So that's what, uh, that's what the, the book was about. And really, um, the point was that we really do have innate psychological predispositions. We don't come as a blank slate. That doesn't mean that those predispositions just control our behavior, you know, on a moment-to-moment basis uh, all the time, like like tunings of a robot or something like that. That, that wasn't, um, you know, the the point. Instead, they give us a sort of a baseline that influences how we interact with the world through our lives in a you know sort of an interplay. Um, how we're uh, the subjective experiences that we have, how we feel something which may differ between different people. You know, some things may be very rewarding for me that are not rewarding for you, for example, um, or interesting to me or frightening for me um, or baffling or whatever it is. Um, and so as we go through our lives, you know, we're, ch- we're choosing our experiences. We're selecting our environments. We're creating our environments in a way that sort of feeds back um, onto our psychology to shape really ultimately our character and our habits, which are much more context specific the context of our lives um whereas the the personality traits and so on are by design uh abstracted away from any individual context the whole point of those constructs like a you know conscientiousness is that you can apply it to anybody across the whole population regardless of their um of their the details of their lives and their and their situations so you know, the way that we develop doesn't necessarily change those innate predispositions, but it builds on those uh, and, and really is, you know, each of us adapts to the world in a characteristic way um, where we're still very much in charge of things, it, 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 even, even though we are wired a certain way. Okay, so just two questions about that. I mean, first of all, are you kind of broadly saying that there's there's three kind of um, kind of sets of in- ways that we're we're influenced so you've got kind of genetic factors these developmental factors and then environmental factors are these kind of three three things yeah broadly and i mean what's interesting is that you know if we say what we can think of those as sources of variance right so if we're interested in the question what makes individual people behave differently from each other then there's differences in genes there's differences in the way their brains developed and then there's this 
long trajectory of individual experiences and, and so on. And sometimes people look for, you know, systematic factors in the environment that, that differ between people um, that they can be exposed to that affect their psychology. Uh, there aren't really many things that have been found like that, but certainly our idiosyncratic experiences, like I said, shape those characteristic adaptations that we make. They may not, they may not alter our innate predispositions. They build on them. Um, so I think that's right. Those are three sort of broad sources of variance. But you can ask a different question, which is just what makes us behave as human beings generally, right? I mean, the, a lot of our behavior is not differential. It's common, right? And, and um, so the focus on just what makes us different from each other is kind of like focusing on this 1% little wiggle room that we have in our individual natures while ignoring this vast sort of 99% of what makes us behave like humans at all, right? The, the, the sort of the typical program that um, in a sense encodes our species specific human nature. And that's a whole other sort of interesting, really important um, area of biology is trying to understand what that is just in what you could call a normative sense, not a not looking at not being really concerned with the variability, which is just one aspect of human nature. But if we um if we look at the the kind of second set of those, so these developmental um kind of methods of influence, what I don't quite understand is how do they not fall how do they not fall into either the other camps of kind of genetic influences or environmental influences? So isn't the way that we develop if it's not a res- as a result of the environment and our experiences and stuff, and it's, it's not a result of um, you know um, our genes, then then where else does that come from? Yeah, well, so it's a great question, and and really, um, you know, talking about it as a source of variation sounds like it's an extra thing that comes from somewhere, right? The, like there's some source of randomness that's pushing things around, and I think actually a better way to think about it is just a lack of constraint. So the, what the genome does is direct the, the program of development to produce an outcome within a, within a range, but it's not really, really narrowly constrained. Like I said, there's not enough information in the genome to specify it to that degree. Um, instead, it's, it's, you know, it, it sets some constraints, but as development proceeds, you know, the organism might be sort of developing here or here or here um, within that range. What development does just by its nature is it, it has to keep going, right? So it, 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 it just has to realize some outcome. So that kind of gives this impetus where it's, it's freezing in place. Whatever the randomness was at the last minute during the last process, well, it has to move on, right? So, um, so, the, so that randomness, you know, that just wherever it happened to be kind of gets incorporated into the developing organism as it goes along. And most of the time that leads to just sort of small quantitative differences in outcome. You know, your twin might be an inch taller than you, for example, or have a slightly longer nose or broader chin or whatever it is, right? Uh, and within the brain, it might be this, li- this little bit of the brain is a little bit bigger or, or smaller. These connections are a little bit more or less. Um, the really interesting thing is that brain development is, is a highly nonlinear process. What that means is that early stages of, of development, uh, what happens there is really crucial for what happens next, right? So for, for a process, say for uh, the wiring of the different parts of the brain to happen properly, 
well, the differentiation of those neurons has to have happened properly. Their migration to the right place has to have happened properly. Um, and so each step is contingent on the previous ones having happened uh, properly within that normal range. Um, and sometimes variation, a small little bit of variation at one point, gets amplified through these nonlinear processes, which will lead to actually quite divergent outcomes, even between monozygotic twins. And you know, for me, I think that's a, an explanation for why, for example, you can get one twin end up left-handed and the other right-handed, or one uh, heterosexual and the other homosexual, or one schizophrenic and the other not. You know, as well as these sort of quantitative variations, you can get these quite dichotomous outcomes due to the nonlinear nature of uh, brain development and, and this contingent sort of aspect to it where every step depends on all the previous steps having happened a certain way. So has the, has the work you've done here and you know, the things you've learned and the research you've done affected much about how you think about yourself and, and other people? You've spent a lot of time thinking about um, you know, how the wiring of our brain shapes who we are like does that has that had any kind of impact on how you feel about people uh you know the ways they act and, and stuff like that yeah it's really interesting i mean the you know the the book i didn't um i didn't set out with that sort of a goal in mind or that um that perspective of thinking about you know what it would mean for how we think about other people but it has affected um the way i think about other people and just the the the, the range of diversity um, in cognitive styles, in personality, in um, even just, you know, the subjective experience, the fact that we all really experience the world in a very specific kind of a way. And, you know, you may, even like with synesthesia, for example, is a really dramatic um, uh, sort of illustration that we don't even perceive the world necessarily in the same way. When you hear something or see something, I mean, that's an extreme condition. Uh, or extreme example, I mean, um, where there's really, you know, bells and whistles going off, uh, you know, for you that I'm just not hearing, for example. But more generally, you know, I think we all perceive the world differently. Some of us even, you know, perceive the world at a faster frame rate than other people, which is something we're, we're working on right now. Um, and of course, we, we feel things differently. I mean, they're, they really, those experiences are just not the same for everybody. And I think being aware of that, um, I guess what I found is that I tend to cut people more slack. <laughs> you know, I just accept um, the idea that the way I feel about something or the way something occurs to me or appears to me uh, is not necessarily the same as the way it occurs to or appears to everybody else. And it's not necessarily, the, the way I see it is not necessarily the right way either. It's just one way. Um, and, you know, so I found personally that that kind of, um, is useful in remembering, you know, that we shouldn't be really judgmental of, of other people and some of the decisions that they make. Because from, you know, from our perspective, you know, it may be that such and such was an, was an obvious thing to do or what should have been done, uh, thinking about it and feeling about it the way I do. But if they don't think about it and feel about it those ways, then it's not the obvious thing for them to have done from their perspective. Um, you know, I, I don't suppose it should have taken writing a book like that to, you know, for that um, epiphany to to dawn on me. But um, but it did make it pretty stark, I think. And just that, like I said, the extent of the variation that we have in the way that our brains and minds work um, 
is is really amazing and something that I think we should accept and actually embrace that sort of um, diversity in in cognition and, and personality and uh, human nature. Yeah, I'm sure I forget it in the in the heat at the moment a lot a lot of the time, but I have found myself I think many times over the uh, past few years, you know, having conversations with people where someone is saying, you know, how could they do that? It's so obvious. Um, what a silly thing to do, but. I just sort of say to them, well, clearly it wasn't if they've done that, you know, otherwise they wouldn't have done it. But yeah. people kind of quite can't really understand that about other, other people. But um, if that's the point you kind of alluded to a minute ago. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, um, yeah, it can give you a, a bit of serenity, right? Rather than getting sort of, um, you know, um, angry even about, the, you know, the way people behave that doesn't seem sensible to you. Um, it's just a, a realization that they have their own lived reality that's different from yours. Fundamentally, I mean, really, can be very fundamentally different, um, and it's a it's a kind of freeing um, to just realize that and, and accept people um, at least understand that they may be coming from a different perspective. So, on like a similar point, has this affected um, much about how you think about people who? Um, are doing so-called kind of you know good or very evil things and how we should think about them and um, how we should think about morality because of yeah. understanding how they're shaped. Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's such a super interesting question. And um, I actually had intended to write in the book a section on morality as a um, kind of as a cognitive function, actually, that, that you know, moral insight, moral um, moral reasoning is uh, a cognitive function that humans have. I think it's an evolved function that evolved because we're an ultra-social species. So we have uh, you know, neural machinery that has evolved to enable us to cooperate with each other. But, uh, but also, uh, you know, we can compete with each other or we can cheat. And then there's neural machinery to uh, sort of um, look for or survey people who might be cheating in various scenarios. So cooperation only works if we have if we trust each other, um, if there's some reciprocity. So if I give you something now, and I trust that you're going to give me something tomorrow or a week later or whatever, um, there's, there's whole sort of neural systems that have built up in social species like ours that monitor those kinds of um, yeah, interactions and relationships and reputations and so on. And so they, they can be coupled to um, these emotional systems of moral outrage that, that we feel, which are really um, there, I think, to ensure that we continue to operate as a, as a social species. So they're, they're signals that someone is working, you know, operating in an antisocial way and something should be done about that. And there's a whole sort of evolutionary ecological rationale for why those systems um, should exist. And some some knowledge uh, at the neuroscientific level and the genetic level for you know what goes into them, and if you think about some people like psychopaths, for example, um, really they're characterized by you you could say a deficit in moral reasoning. Right? They just don't do that moral reasoning in the same way that other people do, and there's some neuroscientific investigations that suggest you know certain circuits in the brain that are not working in the right way that normally, uh, you know, convey what we would call our moral conscience, 
right? Where we don't have to think about it. There's just some things that we wouldn't typically do. And of course, they're reinforced by societal and legal, um, you know, uh, traditions and, and agreements and conventions. But there is an innate uh, uh, um, biological circuitry to that as well. So it's a really, really fascinating area. But I left it out in the end because I think our understanding is not... Um, uh, it's not really complete enough for me to have said anything concrete about it. I mean, it really would just be a kind of a, a observation that there is variation in these sorts of faculties without much insight into what's causing it. Um, although, it, you know, it is true that if you look at um, psychopathy or if you look at traits in that you can measure even in children, which are called callous, unemotional traits. So these are kids who, you know, they don't, they don't sort of respond normally to punishment or reward, really. Um, they may be wantonly cruel to other children, maybe, you know, torturing animals and, and, and things like that. Um, those traits are pretty heritable, actually. Um, I mean, not surprisingly, but like, like every other sort of psychological function. But, um, yeah, beyond that, there's not much more to say. But I do think that, you know, broadly speaking, morality as a um, as a set of cognitive functions is perfectly amenable to scientific analysis and must have some biological basis um, that can be investigated it's just that, that those studies i think are still in their infancy okay if i can ask this kind of uh briefly although i don't know if it's, if it's possible just because it feels like we're so close to the area what would be your take then on on the question if it's not too simple, a question whether or not we have free will. Yeah, well, um, it's a great question, and in fact, um, one that I get asked a lot, right? So, if you if you write a book uh, called "Innate: How the Wiring of Our Brains Shapes Who We Are," you're going to get a question about free will because the natural um, uh, conclusion is: if I say, "Yeah, we, we really are pre-wired with certain predispositions um, and that affect our behavior throughout our lives." Um, then a natural question is, well, wait a minute, if that's true, if I'm just wired a certain way and I'm just acting out those sort of tunings, am I really in charge of what I'm doing? You know, that's, those are affecting my decisions as I go through my life. Um, and so the, what I've just done actually is just completed another book, which is about um, free will and really about agency, actually, because once you start to ask that question about whether we have free will or not because we're wired a certain way, you can go a level deeper and actually say, well, you know what? Actually, all this stuff that we're learning in neuroscience, um, where we can tweak these circuits or those circuits and change what an animal is doing or change the way its cognition is operating, they really seem to imply that this is just mechanism at work, right? Where am I? Where am I in that? This is just the, the cogs are just turning in my in my brain and deciding. My brain is just deciding what what I'm going to do. I'm not in charge. Um, and I think, you know, the more we learn in, in neuroscience, there's a danger that actually, rather than explaining how the brain creates the mind, we're almost explaining the mind away. It's like, well, it doesn't matter what all these things mean or feel like. It's just neural machinery churning, you know, churning away. Right? Um, and actually, it gets worse. You, you can say, well, who cares what these neural circuits are doing? They're just made of atoms and molecules. They're just going to obey the laws of physics, which are deterministic. There's no room for an organism. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be a human. There's no room for a bacterium to do anything. Stuff is just happening according to the laws of physics. All that 
neuroscience is just an illusion. It's not really, you know, there to do anything in particular. It just happens to be organized like that. So um, I don't agree with any of those positions. Uh, I think we do have agency. Uh, in fact, I think agency is the defining characteristic of life itself, really. The, what differentiates living things from non-living things is that living things do things, right? Where a rock doesn't do anything, but a frog does something, an amoeba does something, we certainly do things. And the question is, well, how is that? How, how can that ability to control things, to be a cause in the universe, to be a causal agent, where does that come from? Um, and that's what the new book is about. Um, how did that, and, and it takes an evolutionary view on that. How did the first living things um, come to be, come to have some autonomy from the environment uh, in a way that allowed them, first of all, to just keep persisting because that's what living things do. Uh, and secondly, to act back on the world, you know, to sense what's out in the world and then act on it, to move through it, uh, to do things in it. Um, and once you sort of understand the, the, some of the basic concepts and basic mechanisms there, you, you can follow this evolutionary trajectory and look how, the, how they were built upon and extrapolated and made much, much more sophisticated. So, you know, you get into the neural uh, machinery that, that monitors goals and internal states and actions and outcomes and, you know, rewards and punishments and all that kind of stuff, the, the stuff that allows us to navigate the world. Um, and, and ultimately, uh, you know, the, I, I think the, there's, it's really clear that we do have free will, that nothing in neuroscience or philosophy or physics or genetics uh, um, undermines that, actually. It, 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 what those, those concerns do is that they uh, constrain the nature of freedom that we have and the nature of the, the will that we can exercise. So it's not some absolute thing that we would just do anything at any moment. But actually, you know, if you think about that, if you, if you just did anything at any moment without constraint, really that would mean doing things for no reason. Right, because a reason is a constraint. If you have a reason to do something, that's a constraint on your behavior, and it's a good one, right? It's good to have reasons to do things. Um, so, so actually, if you think about this idea of absolute freedom, it's kind of an incoherent nonsense. Actually, if you had absolute freedom to do anything at any moment, then you wouldn't exist. Right? The only thing that makes you a self existing through time is some continuity of behavior, some continuity of reasons for doing things your past self informing your present self, what's a good thing to do in the service of your future self. Um, so, so yeah, you can end up with a, a, a naturalized view of the biology of free will and agency, which um, I think is a much more satisfying sort of position to get to rather than just this idea of free will is just an illusion because our brains are doing things or because we have this pre-wiring um, that, you know, that we're all born with, or because physics says everything's deterministic. In fact, that's not what physics says. Um, so yeah, so that's the gist of the new, the new book should be out, um, out next year. That's great. I look forward to that. I was tempted to ask you lots of questions on this, uh, on this area, but I think I'll just kind of move on to the, a couple of final, final questions. Um, so yeah, the first, the final two is, I mean, it feels like, at least for me, neurogenetics isn't a field that I've kind of heard as, you know, discussed as something just a bit more 
uh, kind of less interdisciplinary like neuroscience so if, if someone is thinking about um, studying something at this university or as a PhD like who would you think would be a kind of a suitable candidate like what kind of interest should people have if they think that this could be the field that they should go and go and study yeah so um, it's true neurogenetics is kind of a made-up um, term and not really a recognized field unto itself which is fine it doesn't you know it doesn't need to be it sits at the at that intersection it it um, is is really the application of genetics to neuroscience questions, um, which can be obviously really clinically important, uh, but also a hugely powerful basic tool. So, I mean, for me, anyone you know coming from a general biology background or a neuroscience background or genetics background um, can get into these these areas. I think. I mean, my own like you know, I did genetics as an undergrad, but I didn't do any neuroscience as an undergrad. And I picked that up as a as a PhD student in, in California. So, um, you know, there's doing that interdisciplinary stuff can be challenging because there's a lot to know from each from each area, right? There's a lot of jargon, there's a lot of technicality, there's just a lot of um, concepts. Sometimes, interestingly, there's assumptions and positions that people have in different fields uh, that are very implicit. That actually it takes a while to realize that, and that was something that I. Um, came to understand through having you know many many conversations with people who'd come from a very different tradition, say in psychology or in medicine and psychiatry, where you know they may have uh, quite different ways of thinking about things. Um, and I think that's true. You know, these days there's a lot more contact, say, between neuroscience and uh, computer science and artificial intelligence um, and and physics, actually, where again people people bring different perspectives, and that's one of the really sort of exciting things of working in an interdisciplinary area like that. But it's also, um, you know, it's a challenge because you have to do a little more work to make sure everyone's on the same wavelength and not um, not talking past each other unknowingly. And the last question is, what kind of plans have you got for the future, maybe with, uh, with research and maybe just life in general? Yeah, um, well, that's a great question too. So I've been, um, for the last several years I was in a administrative role in the in the college in, in Trinity and so I'm just getting back into sort of starting up research again and asking myself that question well, what should I do with my time um, I've come to find that I'm sort of more interested in thinking about these big pictures and trying to synthesize information from lots of different areas and um, you know writing these books uh, as I've done which are sort of intended for a, a general audience, but but um, certainly an audience that includes people in, in the, across these different, um, these different fields. So I really enjoyed that, trying to draw things together and, and put things into a, into a framework. Um, that doesn't mean I'm not you know, still doing some empirical research on very detailed uh, particular questions. And there's some aspects of psychiatric genetics and um, I mentioned earlier this uh, really interesting project on looking at differences in how fast we perceive the world uh, and where you know where that might have um, an outcome or an impact. Um, but broadly speaking, uh, one of the areas I, I, I'm really interested in is looking at understanding these genetic programs that specify um, 
the, the neural systems that can allow uh, an organism to be an agent in the world, right? To navigate the world, to come to understand it, to develop a, a kind of a map or a model of causal relations of things in the world based on the experience of the animal, knowing that I did this and then that happened, or being able to think, if I did this, that would happen, therefore I should do that or not. Um, that for me is a really interesting area that is sort of underexplored in our current artificial intelligences because they generally don't interact with the world at all, right? They're not agents, actually. Um, and they don't actually understand, they don't develop understanding of the world. They, they have brute force, you know, statistical learning of regularities that can give really impressive performance in particular areas. But then if you ask them to generalize, um, it's clear that they don't have an internal sort of model, causal model that we would equate with understanding. Um, so that's an area that I'm really interested in, is trying to um, see, well, what does it take? What kind of architecture do you need to build uh, for an organism or an agent, could be an artificial one, to develop uh, that kind of causal understanding of the world to the level where we would say, actually, that is a general intelligence. That's not just a highly specific task that this thing can do, it can think uh, and it can apply that understanding in novel situations and so on. So I think there's a really fruitful um, interface between neuroscience and um, AI these days where um, some of those questions can be asked where the goal is not really, for me at least personally, to create an artificial general intelligence. The goal is to use the AI as a test bed for theories about the architectures that that are at play in our in our own brain, so to understand um, our own nature better. Yeah, I've, I've read a bit about um, some of the neuroscience stuff at DeepMind. It feels like this is kind of two way feedback between you know neuroscience helps us understand AI, and the more we understand about AI, the more we understand about neuroscience. Yeah, absolutely, and I think um, I think that's true for genetics too. Actually, I, I think there's a opportunities to you know do really interesting sort of um modeling work in what people call artificial life where we can look at the um the principles by which the genome encodes uh you know a particular outcome whereas i was saying earlier it doesn't actually encode the details of the outcome it just in some way encodes a, a program to get there um and again, I think we can use, you know, artificial life sort of simulated, simulated environments and simulated evolution to better understand the nature of the, how that information is there in the genome. What's the sort of data structure um, that it has and how does that manifest in, in this, um, you know, canalizing development towards some particular outcome. Well, good luck with all of that. And uh, it's great to hear this book's coming out. So look forward to seeing that. And yeah, just thanks a lot for taking the time today. It was great to, great to chat. Cheers. Thanks a lot, Joe. It was my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you enjoyed the human podcast, please consider subscribing. I hope to see you soon.